Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome this podcast, Dr. Edward Boatsley. Dr. Boatsley is Associate Professor at the Wallace Coulter Department of Biomedical Engineering at Georgia Tech University. We're here on scene at the McGowan Institute Scientific Retreat. It's my pleasure to have Dr. Boatsley share with us some of his pioneering research. Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So, tell us a little bit about your program, if you would, please. So, as you said, I'm an associate professor of biomedical engineering at the Wallace Coulter Department of Biomedical Engineering at Georgia Tech and Emory. We focus in three areas primarily. The first area has to do with harnessing the role of immune responses for promoting wound healing and regeneration, primarily in musculoskeletal tissues like bone and muscle, but we're interested in regeneration in its broadest possible applications. The other area is in the area of stem cell biomanufacturing. Our work in regenerative medicine has really brought us to the subject of cell metabolism and stem cells, and we're interested in specific aspects of lipid metabolism and how they could be used to characterize the therapeutic potency and quality of cell-based therapies. And so that's a cell manufacturing focus of our laboratory. And the last area also touches on metabolism, but in a specific disease context. I have a West African ancestry, and I've always been very intimately interested in the subject of sickle cell. And so we look at aspects of lipid metabolism in red blood cells and study how alterations in red blood cell metabolism of lipids can be an underlying cause of disease in people who are living with the disease. So that's a very broad and interesting program. Let's take them one at a time and share a little bit more detail. You mentioned bone and muscle regeneration. I have the impression from talking to other podcast guests that the uh, state of the art in terms of soft tissue engineering is more mature than it is with bone and cartilage. Is that a fair assessment? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. We have a tendency to say that largely because in the cases of cutaneous injuries, those that can be healed in the normal mechanisms of wound healing, we're all familiar with those, right? Cuts, abrasions, scrapes. But certainly when there is volumetric loss, of soft tissue where not only does that space have to be filled, but it has to remodel in a way that restores both function and the aesthetic, I think that there are some rather acute challenges in our ability to do that. I also think that certainly a lot of these soft tissues have a diversity of different kinds of cells where in the loss of soft tissue can compromise our ability to regenerate or to heal after traumatic injuries. And so in some ways, soft tissue loss and problems like breaks or or segmental bone loss are connected to the availability of soft tissue to supply some of the progenitor cells that are participating in the healing. And so I suppose I would push back a little bit on the maturity just because I think that both those topics and their interrelationships have so many interesting questions in them. Well, from your perspective, what is the state of the art in 
terms of uh, soft tissue remodeling. So the specific soft tissue problem that my lab has focused on, and I must add that our focus on this is somewhat more recent than other projects that we have ongoing, but the specific tissue that we're interested in is muscle. The current state of the art in muscle would probably be some type of a muscle transposition reconstructive surgery or a free flap that is implanted into the muscle space. And certainly there are things that are going on in the biomaterials realm right here in the McGowan Institute with extracellular matrix-derived materials and other things. These are all utilized in these severe cases where there's significant muscle loss, but I wouldn't say that any of those approaches are necessarily that mature in that the fibrosis that ensues after the reconstruction and the chronic strength loss and functional deficits that patients continue to suffer with, I think is an unsolved problem. And though the the reconstructive surgeries that are done, I think, are extremely valuable and they are the state of the art, I think there's some progress to be made to really address that problem. Are your observations equally applicable to bone? I'd like to think that the focus that we have on the role that the immune system plays, and by that I mean that there are certain subtypes of neutrophils and subtypes of monocyte and macrophage populations and even subtypes of lymphocytes that play very important and necessary roles in the process of successful healing. But oftentimes, both in bone and in soft tissues, the volume of the injury or some type of underlying infection or disease can throw off the sequence of events and the signaling that results in healing. And so I would say that the approach that we take to more rigorously characterize the immune response that is inherent to those different types of injuries is the right one, both for bone and for muscle, but the prescription or or the recipe that we're looking for about how we want to restore immune homeostasis and preserve the regenerative capacity in the two injuries, those can differ. And I would say that in the context of bone, it seems that the immune modulatory strategies, that is to say how we're changing the immune response in the context of a significant bone injury, at this point, at least in preclinical models, is more successful in regenerating new bone than in comparison to the progress we're making in regenerating and integrating new muscle tissue. Very interesting. What's the level of maturity? When when might some of this technology be available clinically? That's an interesting question, and I can't help but ask that question being here at McGowan today because there's so many people whose work that I've followed who have their eye on clinical translation virtually from the outset, it seems, of the questions that they begin to ask in their research. For me, most of the emphasis that we've placed are relatively early stage in the translational pipeline. And so we don't necessarily have anything looming 
on the horizon for clinical trials right now. But we'd like to think that some of the things that we're discovering about the underlying biology and immunology could be factored into modifications and applications of existing materials that could be of some advantage. When you achieve your objective, it will be a significant improvement from a clinical perspective. So yeah. I wish you well. Thank you. So uh, let's move on to the second uh, area you mentioned in terms of manufacturing. Tell us a little bit more about that, please. So um, I really have to credit my colleagues at Georgia Tech and Emory who had a vision for the direction of the cell therapy industry and where it was going and what some of the unsolved challenges were, some of the unmet needs were. And to make a long story short, essentially, I was really convinced that the scalability of cell therapies and how industry can develop the protocols necessary to monitor the quality and potency of cell-based therapies was a big issue that needed to be addressed and that the biomedical engineering community could be a part of finding the answers to some important questions. And so for me, what we're looking for are quality control attributes. We're looking for things that we can measure that are specific to cells that are being cultured outside the body that predict how well those cells will actually perform in their intended application. Oftentimes, for us, we're interested in mesenchymal stem cells, and we're specifically interested in how those adult mesenchymal stem cells from the bone marrow or from the corpus of the umbilical cord or from fat tissue, how those cells communicate with the immune system to tame inflammation, in a manner of speaking. And so we're looking for ways in which we can characterize the metabolism of the cells and be able to say that this population of cell is going to tame inflammation more effectively than that population of cells. So that's really the basis of the work that we're doing. And the specific techniques that we apply are high-throughput, kind of mass-spec-based lipidomics. So we're looking for different molecular structures that are present in the lipid bilayer of cells, and we're trying to pull out from that data the specific lipid structures that are most predictive of how well that cell is going to do in its application. So I assume the FDA, in terms of good manufacturing practices, is highly interested in this particular work. Absolutely, as are our industry partners. So there's a consortium at Georgia Tech Emory and a, a, a newly funded engineering research center from the National Science Foundation that's really brought together investigators from a group of universities around the country that are really looking at these kinds of problems. And I think the metabolomics, I should say, are using kind of high-throughput data analysis methods of cell metabolism and looking specifically at lipidomics is something that has interested our clinical partners, our industrial partners, as well as those regulatory and standards agencies that all have a role to play in bringing cell therapies to reality. You mentioned immune response. I know some of your colleagues believe that some forms of tissue engineering actually give a positive immune response. 
Is that the case with what you're doing? I would agree with that. I think that the distinction that my lab would make is that there may be unique recipes to different kinds of tissues and different types of injuries. And so immune response, we try to define in terms of the specific cells that are recruited, when their accumulation is maximal, and what functions those cells actually perform within the microenvironment, within the niche of injury. And so those things can be different based on the specific tissue engineering application, but in virtually all of them, the immune system is playing a very significant role. So in terms of your work on manufacturing, what's the status? The status of our cell manufacturing work is that we are a piece of a a larger whole where we can provide services to partners that are producing cells of various kinds with a focus right now on mesenchymal stem cells, but we have an eye on things like CAR T cells or dendritic immunotherapy cells. We can provide profiles and methods of analyzing those lipid profiles that correlate with cell signaling events that are of interest to those various communities and stakeholders. So our status is that we are providing a good quality control attribute, we believe, and what remains to be seen is how effective the measurement of these particular quality attributes enable the large-scale manufacturer scale-up and scale-out of cell therapies to help people. So let's uh, spend a moment or two on the sickle cell work. Give us an update on where you are in that. So sickle cell is an interesting disease in that our understanding of the underlying mechanisms involved at the level of genes and proteins and cells is very mature compared to other types of diseases that we confront. And if there were any disease, you would think that our technology and gene editing and cell-based therapies would be able to eradicate, it would be something like sickle cell disease. And while I'm not necessarily working directly to address the problem of sickle cell using cell-based therapies per se, we're still trying to determine ways that we can help more adult people who are living with the disease and how it tends to manifest itself in the dysfunction of various organs, you know, bone, lung, kidney, even some neuro and cognitive and learning deficits are associated with the disease. Essentially what we think is that shape distortion in the red cells because of the sickling that occurs throws off the metabolism of lipids in the membrane of those cells. And we've made those kinds of measurements about how the lipid distribution has changed. And we're testing small molecules now about how those small molecules can restore normal lipid homeostasis, or at least as close to normal as possible, in red cells. And the hope is that by treating the cells directly using these molecules, we could prevent or offset some of the pathologies, the the diseases in other organ systems that are associated with sickle cell. Uh, I seem to recall recently I heard that in terms of the DNA, uh, there's just one chromosome that's out of whack, 
in terms of what causes sickle cell. Is that correct? That's right. It's a, a point mutation that's actually been identified for a very long time. And the exchange of an amino acid and, and a whole cascade of disorders that ensue from that. And so I think that there is hope for treating the sickle cell disease at its root using gene editing approaches and cell-based therapies. And perhaps one day I'll be a part of that effort. In the meantime, we're focused on some of the accompanying organ damage in the disease and just want to stay plugged in to all the areas that we can contribute. Very important research. I wish you well. Thank you. So I know that you have an interest in multidisciplinary training research. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in that particular area? I will. So I got a mathematics degree as an undergraduate from the University of Maryland at College Park. And I was exposed to research at a very early stage after graduation that fascinated me in the area of biomaterials. I didn't necessarily have the background to immediately transition into biomaterials research, but I was embraced by a community of people that included orthopedic researchers, that included chemists, that included biologists, and that included people at various stages, which is, at the time, I wasn't familiar with what academic research was like. And so there was a principal investigator and postdoctoral investigators and graduate students and undergraduates. And so there was a diversity of perspectives, a diversity of backgrounds that were coming together to solve problems. And I kind of fell in love with that process. So I was always exposed to and integrated in an environment of multiple disciplines and the challenge is to learn how to bring your unique talents and skill sets and knowledge base to a place where you're adding value to the team and so I admire the things that happen here in interdisciplinary institutes where you can have a bioengineering program and a life science program that can partner in the creation of a training program that's common to both but also that is leveraging the backgrounds from both kinds of students in an area like regenerative medicine. And so those are the kinds of things that we try to do at Georgia Tech and Emory, and I think it's the kind of thing that more places need to do. And I'm glad to be here to see how one of the best institutions is actually doing that. We appreciate your support in that particular endeavor. Thank you very much. Dr. Bosley, thank you for your sharing with us your pioneering studies, and uh, we'll put it on the podcast website a link to your website. So if people want to follow up some more, they have access to that information. As we conclude this podcast, let me say thanks to the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine for sponsoring this podcast series. We welcome suggestions. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com, and we thank you for listening. <laughs>